Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with uh, Eric Kaufman. Um, we're here to talk about his report, Born This Way, The Rise of LGBT as a Social and Political Identity. Uh, Eric, how are you doing? Good, Richard. It's good to be back. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, so what, what inspired you to write this paper about the rise of uh, LGBT, particularly among the youth? Well, I mean, I saw the data in, first of all, in the FIRE survey, I was astonished. I mean, I, this is not a topic I've researched in the past. And I was working with the the Foundation in individual, for Individual Rights in Education data, uh, which covers sort of 57,000 undergraduate students at the top 150 U.S. universities, 2020, 2021. I was looking mainly around academic freedom issues and um, looking at the demography and the political divisions amongst uh, young, you know, 20-somethings. And I was noticing that, oh, well, LGBT really, first of all, was a large category, like around a quarter. And I had just never occurred to me that it was that large. Uh, you know, I had an inkling that this was something that had had kind of you know, more people were talking about, but just demographically, I didn't realize it was that large. You hadn't seen the Gallup uh, data and stuff because it was consistent with some other stuff that, you know, as you know now. Well, yeah, I, I did see the Gallup, but that was sort of in a, in a subsequent, you know, online search. And I came across the latest Gallup figures, which put the number for Gen Z, which is basically 18 to 25s at, at something like 21%. Um, which is sort of in line with the fire data, which was around 24, 25%. And so, yeah, I think that more or less confirmed something that I'd already picked up. And I also looked in to the congressional, uh, cooperative congressional election study, which has a, a you know, 60,000 sample uh, of which under 30s, you know, respect, like something like 10,000. And you could see there also the number was even higher. It was like 30%, 32% or something. Now, that's not a representative sample doesn't matter. It was still confirming that there was this quite substantial jump in LGBT identity. Now, if that is, you know, the question then that raises, it raises all kinds of questions, obviously, political, social, uh, what's going to be the impact on the birth rate, all of these questions, which immediately flow from that. And then, of course, we had increasing talk, say, on the right with the don't, so-called Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida. You had Chris Rufo talk, and, and others talking about schools and LGBT grooming and all this sort of stuff. And I think Ross Douthat's piece then came out in, in early April talking about the LGBTQ culture war, which I think very much comes in the wake of this, this new demographic information. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's hard for people who are maybe too young to remember, like the initial fights over gay rights, uh, about gay marriage, you know, started, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, you know, how much the pro-gay rights movement was uh, relying on the idea that sexual identity was fixed. I mean, it was such a uh, strong talking point. You know, they would say, uh, you know, you know, it was like something was like height. It was like people were born this way. And, you know, the, the Kinsey scale and all this other stuff, you know, that was like sort of like a more academic idea. But the politics of it, I remember, was just completely like a very hard kind of genetic determinism. Do you, do you recall that debate the same way? Yeah, I mean, I, I was more following things like Prop 8 in California and, and uh, the, the sort of, you know, the, the sort of don't, I remember Bill Clinton, I'm old enough to, to remember the gays in the military thing, the uh, Obama as well, that the don't ask, don't tell, the kind of gay marriage thing, soft peddling, all that. I mean, that was really 
it was it's it's a quite recent development this sort of rapid acceptance of homosexuality and gay marriage um and so i guess in that that's sometimes studied as an example of you know very clearly the inglehart liberal value change thesis suddenly everybody's on board suddenly it's not an issue anymore um and yeah so so i guess but now we're kind of moving into a phase where it's no longer just about toleration but it's now perhaps a question around lifestyle choice or even conformity I mean, that was, you know, Bill Maher, what, what he was talking about uh, was, was, you know, is this a question of the relaxation of constraint or is it a question of pressures to conform, to be different, et cetera? And, and why California versus Ohio, right? And I think that that's a key question because there are very different implications. Yeah. And so, you know, you do find, so we have to start by saying these numbers might be a little bit exaggerated. And so we have higher quality data from from uh, the, from Canada and the UK that indicate it might not be, you know, 20 to 30% or whatever. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So the first thing, I mean, the general gist of the report is that these numbers are not as transformative and not as radical in their consequences as has been suggested by both, incidentally, progressives and conservatives. It has a lot in common with the great replacement sort of ethnic change kind of narrative where you have people on the left and on the right who are sort of either celebrating or, or acting alarmed at these numbers. So the first thing to say is that, yeah, we have got a census in, in Britain. Well, there's a pilot census in Britain of which has which uses census methods and sampling procedures, three hundred and twenty thousand sample, uh, which shows that the sixteen to twenty fours the number they have is seven point six percent LGBT. The number that I've gotten in the you know very high quality surveys from YouGov, which are the equivalent with weights with everything for eighteen to twenty year olds, is uh, twenty sort of between twenty five and twenty nine percent. So <laughs> that's a falling miss. That's so, a big, big difference. <laughs> um, now the, the the census data is for 2019. The YouGov data I have is for like you know literally a few weeks ago. You could say maybe in three years there might have been there has been a rise. You know a gradual steady rise from something like three percent in 20 oh God 2010 or there about 2012 up to 7.6 in 2019. So maybe it will have inched up a little and. You know, you might say it'll have inched up perhaps to 10%, although I don't think it'll have been that high. So, but in any case, we've got a, an issue of, of the polling numbers being two to three times or even four times higher than the census numbers. Now, in Canada, um, what we have is numbers for the trans and non-binary, uh, which together formed for the sort of 16 to 24 population, round about 0.8% trans or non-binary. Now, the if you compare that to the Gallup numbers for Gen Z, which is approximately the same comparative group, they got 2.1%. Um, so 2.1 versus 0.8, it's sort of, again, two to three times higher. Uh, and I think I would say conservatively, the survey numbers seem to be twice as high. Let's just say. Yeah, Canada so Gallup we, is just trans alone. It's not even including binary, right? In, um, well, it, in the, the, the question wording, I'd have to look at the question wording again, but I think it could, let's, let's, it's fair to say that the interpretation might be if you're trans or non-binary, you tick that trans box. Let's just, 
let's just assume, give that to be conservative. Because <laughs> yeah. if well, it's not... Because okay, okay, yeah, it helps your case more. I mean, if it's just trans, they don't yeah, even have Yeah, that's steel manning the case, right? So uh, the other case. Um, but in any, in, so if we then, if our starting point is that these survey numbers are uh, have to be deflated by at least half, that is a big adjustment. Um, so that's kind of the first thing. Or the other... So yeah, the Canada and the... Uh, the UK data would suggest that that these numbers are inflated. Now, one of the reasons that might be is because the same characteristics that predict LGBT identity, um, which which are might be rooted, for example, in psychological openness, let's say a willingness to be open to new experiences, which might mean you're volunteering for sur- uh, surveys more. You might be more politicized, uh, perhaps because there's a, a there's a correlation between being very liberal which we'll talk about in a minute, and being LGBT. And there's also a correlation between being very liberal uh, and posting political content online. So we have a possible, possible explanation in that um, such people might be overrepresented in the panels. If you talk to pollsters, they'll always talk about how hard it is to get young people to fill these surveys out, particularly certain kinds of young people. So I think there is a, a possibility that the young population is a tricky one to get up an accurate representative sample on. So yeah, that's the first rather mundane but important kind of methodological point is these surveys might be inflating by at least two times the the actual number. So yeah, it's important to say we have this um, data about the possible exaggeration in surveys from uh, Canada and the UK. We don't have a US um, census that asks people about uh, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity or anything like that. But I mean, it makes sense if they're overestimated in Canada and UK by conventional survey methods, um, they might be in the US uh, too. Um, the you know This reminds me um, of uh, the polling misses in the last few presidential elections with uh, Trump. And so 2016, it was, it was like, you know, the polls were okay, but they were particularly um, bad in um, like the Midwest. Um, so the, this was the Trump surprise. Uh, so it was like he won Wisconsin, Michigan, and uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, he won the presidency. Um, he did better in other places than people uh, thought he would. And then in 2020, I was, you know, I was listening to Nate Silver, and one thing he would say um, was like, you should have assumed from one election to the next the polling miss is going to be the same because the pollsters learned from the previous election, and then they're going to come back and you know they're going to they're going to fix it or maybe they'll overshoot or whatever. So you can't really know anything from 2016 what the polling miss is going to be in 20. 2020. And then you go to 2020 and it looks like, like Trump is down by, you know, 12 in Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. and, and they somehow make the exact same mistake. And then on top of it, um, they make the mistake, you know, these Hispanics uh, uh, areas, um, they go much more for Trump, particularly in Miami, uh, Miami Dade County. Um, the miss there was absolutely massive. Um, and so it's, it's sort of the same thing that's going on here, right? It's, it's something about like the Trump voter in the Midwest, plus maybe, you know, Hispanics, um, they're not, they're not talking to pollsters for elections and the, and the election is sort of like the census because you get the real, you know, you get the real thing. Um, and they're also, these are the people who are not identifying as LGBT. I mean, do you see the sort of connection? There could be a connection there. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting comparison. I mean, it's somewhat different dynamic in the sense that there's been studies of the polling miss, let's say in 2020, where there are the group that is particularly stood out for me were sort of white college-educated Trump voters. So you you have a, a kind of voter that, you know, you can wait for, a, you know, educate, you can wait your poll to take into account if you're missing, say, 
you know, white voters without a degree or something, or Hispanic voters, whatever. You can do those sorts of weights. What you can't wait for is trust in pollsters, trust in, in people generally. And, and I think there's this kind of low trust type voter who, uh, who actually resents pollsters, who thinks that they're de- all Democrats and that they're out to get them. Um, and there's a certain kind of also college-educated Republican voter who feels these stigmas quite quite strongly and didn't disproportionately didn't answer the polls. And I think that threw them off. Now, what's happening in this case, I think, is something different, which is that um, I think it's a sampling issue. I mean, I don't think there's necessarily it's necessarily the case that people are shyer about saying they're LGBT to a, to a census taker than they would be to a pollster. And I don't think there's a lot of resentment of pollsters either uh, or survey takers, but that's one possible. Now, it is also possible that if families are filling these forms out there, that that could lead to a census underestimate. I mean, I don't discount that as a partial possibility. Oh, the families are filling out the census. So like well, your mom is saying you're not gender conformed. Well, I, I don't know, right? Because you, you've got, you know, that may be more convincing for a 16-year-old than it would be for a 24-year-old. And so... Uh, yeah, yeah, right. I, I don't know. I mean, that I'm not, I'm just speculating here, but I think a large, a large amount of it must be down to sampling. And because the pollsters, they're always saying about how tricky it is to get those young people, who especially young without college very hard to nail them down and get them to, to you know so there's a lot of problems sampling in that group um and i just think there's a lot of variability so i would trust the census more than these surveys i'm afraid even though i love surveys yeah <laughs> right yeah so it's uh it's still a big i mean it's still a big rise even if we use you know like the uh the uk data you said what it goes from like three to seven percent oh yeah three to seven point six so almost a tripling yeah, we do. You know, yeah, we doubled or tripled something. You know, yeah, uh, LGBT. We didn't. You know, uh, it's not an order of magnitude. So it's, that's you know, that's a difference. Um, and okay, so uh, you know, what did you find? What's the relationship between? Uh, I don't think I don't think this is going to shock a lot of people, but some one aspect of it I think is surprising. So what's the connection between the LGBT identity and uh, political orientation? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the the, the key findings is that. You know, if you if you have a let's say a five point ideology scale from very liberal to very conservative, uh, there's a very big difference between the the very liberals and the rest. Um, so the very liberal group might be as much as twice uh, as likely to be LGBT as the slightly liberal. Uh, and we see that in survey after survey that there seems to be a correlation between being very liberal. Uh, and identifying as LGBT. Now, there is also some difference between the slight liberals and, say, conservatives, but that difference might be, you know, not greater than the difference between very liberals and slight liberals. Uh, so you have a very strong correlation then between ideology and identifying as LGBT. Another, and, and particularly if we look over time, you know, if we just take, let's say we go with that Pew, uh, the, the one Bill Maher cited, where is you go from sort of something on the order of uh, a few percentage points in 2008 up to 21 percent uh, in in 2021. Well, if you actually break that down by ideological category, you can see the numbers go from about 10 to 15 percent LGBT amongst very liberal people in 2008-10 uh, up to a third. So the number just sort of takes off, and all of a sudden we're at one third of the very liberals identifying as LGBT 
Whereas for all of the other groups, there's only a slight change. It's, it's only a much more modest. They're much more stable. So a lot of the action on this uh, increase in LGBT identification seems to have occurred within the most liberal fifth of the young population. Uh, and I think that's kind of quite an important finding because it's now you could argue, well, um, no, what's actually happened is that LGBT people have gotten more liberal than they were. And actually, that's not the case. If you look in the data, the relationship between uh, being LGBT and uh, where you are on the ideology scale is pretty much constant through this period. So in fact, what's occurred, and it's also not the case that the rise in LGBT has has been matched by a rise in the total liberal, very liberal population. The, The very liberal share has remained reasonably constant, not totally, but reasonably. And so my conclusion from all of that is that effectively what happened is you had a big expansion of LGBT identity disproportionately within that very liberal fifth of the population. Yeah. So you have a figure and I mean, you have a figure in here that shows the different surveys and yeah, so this, uh, you know, it's a big difference, very liberal and everyone else. And then, you know, it depends on the survey. Some surveys show like GSS, shows no relationship. If you take out the very liberal, you show, see no relationship at all between liberal to very conservative, which is surprising. Others show a relationship, but it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, less pronounced than between very liberal and slightly liberal. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a mental health, you know, angle too. And, and so can you talk about that? Well, yeah. So, so I should also say, by the way, just in terms of these surveys, the GSS had a, you know, it's, quite rigorous and very representative in its sampling, but it's also the smallest. You know, you only got about 2,000 people per year across all age groups. By the time you get down to the, you know, under 30s, you know, you're dealing with a few hundred, whereas the um, CCES and fire surveys have got, you know, whatever, 57, 60,000. So so you've got a much larger number. They're all largely telling the same story, by the way, on that uh, very liberal group being distinctively more LGBT uh, than all the others. Um, and, and, and by the way, the other thing I should add is that <clears throat> party identification <clears throat> as going on a five-point scale from, from very Democrat to very Republican, uh, a weaker relationship, considerably weaker than the very liberal to very conservative. So actually, I don't think this is driven by party politics. It's driven much more by um, the relationship between where you stand ideologically and I believe, underlying psychological factors. And there's a whole research area on this, how psychological traits such as openness to experience, conscientiousness, and neuroticism, the big, some of the big five traits are correlated with ideology more strongly than with party identification. Yeah. <laughs> so my read of that, those numbers is that this is tied into a kind of psychological substrate, which is predictive of ideology and of LGBT identity. And of course, as you just mentioned, um, mental, various mental health indicators, in particular anxiety and depression, is higher amongst groups that have that are lower in conscientiousness, higher in neuroticism and openness. And there's been some articles looking at this particular... In fact, one researcher set out really to show that conservatives would have... Uh, you know, more anxiety because of their fear of change and actually found the reverse in the, in the data, which was quite interesting. Good, good, honest 
uh, an example of honest academia here where you report counterintuitive findings. Wait, what, was the, what was the finding? I'm sorry, repeat that again? Well, the, the finding was that that um, it was actually liberals rather than conservatives that that, that had reported greater anxiety. Uh, but, but the About researchers change. set out looking perhaps to see whether conservatives had the higher anxiety based on, you know, fears of change and so on. Yeah. Um, but the neuro the liberals are more neurotic. Uh, that, that finding has been around for, I think a while. I don't think that's surprising, but the fear of change, was it that they find liberals were more afraid of change in that particular case? No, no, it wasn't that, but it was more that the work, the starting hypothesis was that we're going to find greater anxiety among conservatives when they did they found the reverse and and i think a lot of this goes back to the these points around the big five where low conscientiousness high neuroticism high openness are correlated with being very liberal and and, and again the this research really does isolate also the very liberal from the slightly so the very liberal stood out as as having more anxiety more depression and that's in the report i've i looked there were a couple of surveys one was the uh, Qualtrics survey that I did for another report, uh, I think a year or two ago. Um, luckily, Richard had had included that question on anxiety and, and, and sadness, which I, I hadn't thought to put in there, but it was quite useful that I had it in there. And you could see um, it, roughly very liberal is about twice as likely to be anxious and depressed as, as everybody else um, on both the GSS and the Qualtrics. Yeah, I mean, has mental has the, have the mentally unhealthy sort of maybe become so? Yeah, there's a big correlation. All the uh, let's uh, before we get into sort of the underlying factors, talk about the, a little bit about the the mental health aspect. Of yeah, and so so there's really a nexus between three things. One is is being very liberal. The other is L, being LGBT, and the third thing is high anxiety or sadness. Um, so people who say they are anxious or depressed all or most of the time. I mean, there was a piece out in the Atlantic, which uh, I think showed that something like three quarters of LGBT uh, teens reported feeling sad or hopeless all or most of the time. It's like three quarters. Now, there was, of course, a pandemic effect. That pandemic effect hit all categories. Uh, yes, it affected LGBT and the most women, but it had a uniform a, a, impact across all categories, but it's just that LGBT were already quite a margin higher on the anxiety and depression scale, and they simply went even higher. So, you, you know, it was like three, upwards of three quarters reporting feeling sad or hopeless almost all the time as of 2021. So just astounding numbers. So there really is this kind of mental health crisis, but it's concentrated again in, in particular in the LGBT a group in the very liberal group. And so there is this kind of connection. And what I found was if you put in, uh, if you did a factor analysis of three variables, one being um, the anxiety and, and sadness scale, the other being the the ideology from very liberal to very conservative, and the third one uh, being LGBT or not LGBT that you saw, one underlying variable explaining roughly half the variation in those three. So that's suggesting there's a lot of overlap there. And again, I think it relates back to these psychological dispositions, um, which predict all three. Yeah. So there's, yeah. So there's, I mean, there's like, uh, you know, four different theories, right? There's uh, LGBT makes you liberal and makes you sad. Um, being sad makes you liberal and LGBT. Uh, being liberal makes you sad and LGBT. Maybe that one's a little harder to, to buy. 
And then there's, uh, they're, you know, they're all related to something else in the universe, which is, you know, that could be a lot of uh, different things. Uh, it seems like, you know, to an extent, sort of, you know, liberalism, I mean, has been taken over by identity politics. Are the mentally unhealthy just sort of another identity group? Because, you, you know, you do have sort of, you know, the recognition under like the American with Disabilities Act. You do like have this bureaucratic thing where like mental illness is recognized. When I was uh, teaching students, I don't know if you have this in the UK, but um, some of them will get extra time on their test. They'll get like, you know, everyone will get like 50 minutes. They'll have some, you know, some subjective disorder that will give them like three hours or something. Right. <laughs> you know, they get the, and there's like, you know, there's data of like in like higher class areas, like everyone is getting this exception. I mean, it's right, like, right. You know, crazy. <laughs> It's a crazy thing. And, you know, people like, you know, people don't usually, I don't think they just lie about these things. I think people will, if it's in their interest, they'll convince themselves they're mentally ill or they'll have some predisposition that they can be encouraged into sort of indulging in. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 I think the, again, the mental illness, I think is the most fundamental thing because it's, it's more, you know, it's more tied to your identity than your politics probably more than LGBT, even though that's more fundamental than politics to people because it's, it does like one of the lessons here is that it is sort of like a, a trendy thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I well, said a lot there, but go ahead, you, go ahead. You have like, you know, the, LG, the correlation between uh, anxiety and depression is highest with LGBT, next highest with women, and least, let's say, it seems to be least amongst non-whites. Now, I mean... You know, one there was a study that went back to I think it has data for quite a large number of high school students, quite a significant sample going back to like 2010 or 2008, and shows that the gap between LGBT and the others on these measures increases between like 2012 and 2017, 18, something like in that period. And that's kind of strange because that's a period in which you know we've got constantly growing toleration of. LGBT lifestyles. And so it's kind of counterintuitive that, you know, you would have thought the mental health problem would have been greater uh, back when there was more homophobia, let's say. Uh, but actually, it seems like the reverse, because a lot of these papers kind of assume that the reason that there's a higher, a bigger problem with um, with anxiety and depression and unhappiness in the LGBT group is because of discrimination and uh, psychological load and all these sorts of problems associated with prejudice. Now, of course, it could be uh, that there's more attention being paid in the culture to prejudice, which simply makes those issues more present in their minds on a daily basis. So there are a whole bunch of different things that could be happening. I can't help but think that uh, a culture which, let's say, uh, valorizes vulnerability that that talks a lot about uh, trauma and and about you know encouraging people to sort of explore their feelings, explore their their traumas um, uh, is one in which you you're perhaps going to get more focus on these things. I mean, I, again, that's just a theory, and I mean it's not a theory that I've seen well worked out in a lot of literature, but it's also a theory that's kind of going to be very unfashionable. As I say, this is not my area, and it's not an area I intend to go into. But I just think it would be interesting to understand because you know you have cultures uh, where you know, for example, in uh, native cultures in sort of the Arctic, for example, you have extremely high suicide rates. Now, there is a degree to which that is cultural. There's a degree to which you know, in the South Pacific, you had copycat suicide phenomena. You know, so, you know, to what extent 
uh, is mental illness also susceptible to contagion effects, to cultural effects? I think that would be an interesting area, and it could just be I'm ignorant of the literature, but I, I think there's something going on culturally uh, that is explaining this rise. Uh, not and Now, of course, it, is it's social media, by the way, I should say, social media use is correlated with all these things as well, with being very liberal, with being LGBT, um, and it is. So, so we do have that correlation. However, uh, it only explains a portion of uh, the nexus between these variables. Um, and it also, you know, it's also linked to mental health. So it is a part of the story, but I found it only explaining like maybe 10% of the variation. So it's not the main culprit. Yeah. Yeah. I think one problem with the mental health discourse is like, it assumes that you can raise awareness of mental. It's like, you know, if it's like in quantum mechanics, it's like when you observe the thing, you change sort of the nature of what's going on. Right. Right. Um, and it's like, they, you know, there's the, this hubris that you could observe mental illness, raise awareness of it, think about it, talk about it and not change it. Right. But, but it's like, you know, this is something that's fundamental. It's, it's like, not like the physical world where you, you know, you're observing the clouds and the way they move. And, you know, that's just going to, does the observer doesn't matter. Once you start talking about it, once you have a language for it, once you label it, um, you're changing what, how people think about these things and how they experience it. Maybe it makes it better. Maybe it makes it worse. But the idea that you're just a scientist observing things and you're not going to have like an influence, that is just, you know, that's just the, the that's just a completely unjustified assumption. Um, and so yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, a plausible hypothesis that by thinking about this stuff, by raising awareness, by putting so much, you know, it was like, uh, I think it was just Obamacare when like uh, insurers became required to cover, uh, I know they became required to cover like drug treatment, I, you know, mental health, I don't know if that's always recovered, but it, you know, there's a trend towards making, you know, making it more uh, readily available. And, you know, the, the, it's not like... It, everything doesn't stay constant. Things change once you start, you know, once you start talking and thinking about it and whether we're doing it in a healthy way, it's not something, you know, where we're really investigating because the system as a whole doesn't have any incentive to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think it, that what we're actually looking at, or, or one of the potential aspects of my report is ironically a kind of social construction argument that you can, to some degree, socially construct a higher whether it be LGBT, whether it be mentally ill, uh, that perhaps a culture that is conducive to those things can increase the supply of those things. So, for example, on the LGBT front, what, what I found was, for example, that same-sex partnering behavior, uh, you know, people who reported having a same-sex partner in the last five years, that that has actually increased much more slowly um, whereas the, it's the identification that has really increased a lot. And if you go back to some of the literature on this, you know, if people have, uh, occasional same sex feelings as opposed to strong and persistent, I mean, that's an important distinction that's been made uh, that if you have more people who have, uh, you know, episodic, uh, feelings wafting over them and they suddenly say, aha, I am LGBT or I'm bisexual, typically. I mean, bisexual has been the category that's had the big growth, particularly amongst women. Um, so you're getting more women than identifying as bisexual rather than straight, perhaps on the basis of these uh, episodic feelings. That, 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 that is, you know, you could arguably say that's a social, uh, socially constructed thing. Now, to some degree, you can construct real emotions and real, you know, even lifestyles. There has been some increase in the reporting of same-sex, um, sorry, 
uh, some increase in the reporting of uh, same-sex behavior. Uh, but um, but that's been something on the order of sort of a four point increase since two thousand and eight ten compared to a uh, you know ele- you know something like seven points for uh, is well eleven points sorry for identity so it's a much larger uh, change with regard to LGBT identity than actually same sex behavior yeah yeah and it's interesting I mean who's getting yeah you know, who's socially you know constructing this identity for themselves so I am looking just at the uh, gallop of your uh, uh, this is um, Generation Z. Uh, you know, you you have, um, or actually, this is just all Americans right now. So it, 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 they have basically among women. If you combine bisexual, gay, and lesbian, you know, it's like eight point four percent, and if it's like four point five if you combine men. So women are twice as likely in the population overall. Um, in the in this one Gallup survey, and it's consistent with you know most of them. And for the under thirty data, it's women who are more susceptible. Um, to identify and maybe this is part of the nature i mean maybe women's uh, it seems like it goes going back to the kinsey scale that women's uh, sexual orientation is more um sort of fluid and on a spectrum and or maybe it could be you know whatever the, all these other things that are going on mental illness liberalism you know just appeal to women and it's part of that yeah factor. i mean there have been, stu- been studies i think of sexual arousal which suggests that for men it's much more bimodal you know, it's either opposite sex or same sex. It's more bimodal, whereas for women, it's more spectral. So I think there's these, you know, that might be behind this pattern where we see certainly for, for women, the bisexual category is, is somewhere on the order of six to eight percent amongst this group compared to the lesbian category, only one to two percent. Whereas amongst men, the gay and the bisexual categories are pretty similar sized. And, 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 you know, so, so the female bisexuality is definitely the category that is the one to look at as a bellwether for this. And, and that would, you know, it would make sense that, w- that this is a more, more biologically malleable. There's more room for blank slate and social construction there. So perhaps that, that is evidence that a kind of social constructionist, uh, dynamic is at work here and then the question becomes well what is that dynamic and uh, as we you know when with copycat suicides in the south pacific or 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 in in amongst the inuit and and native peoples of the arctic you know this could be a cultural expression as well with regard to mental illness that that you know if to the extent that it's something people focus on more where you have more medicalization of, of things which might have just been seen as moods uh, and if people focus on these things more, maybe, maybe, and, and I'm not an expert on this, but again, but maybe that might lead to more actual uh, anxiety and depression problems, or perhaps it's people just saying things that they, that they, that in the past people would say, oh, I had a bad day. Maybe now they say, they might say, oh, I, I feel depressed all the time. It could be, it could be that it's not as serious if that's the case, if it's just a sort of form of expression, then that's not as serious. But on the other hand, there's also evidence of significant increase in self-harming, significant increase in real measurable things, suicide, particularly among women. So I do think it isn't just uh, a cultural expression. There is something real happening. The, the, The question is, to what extent is the actual real physical harming an outgrowth of a more sort of medicalized therapeutic culture? Um, which is being, to some degree, encouraged by everything that's happened in this sort of from the self-help movement onward. 
Yeah, I mean, the big picture is, I mean, you have the Great Awakening and you have, you know, because this is all going on concurrently with this. And, you know, it's a, it seems to be the, uh, you know, Derek Thompson wrote that Atlantic piece, which you cite um, in the report. And, I, you know, I responded on Twitter that, you know, there's, you know, there's a simple explanation here, which is, you know, the Great Awakening has been, you know, b- b- miserable. And basically, the pe- it's the timeline works out. And then the people who are uh, most affected by uh, by it are the ones who've sort of, you know, gone along most with the trend. You know, women, the gender gap uh, in politics has grown, you know, LGBT, you know, is correlated with liberal ideology. So, you know, there's a parsimonious explanation here, you know, if if uh, if that's the way we want to take it, although the causation is, you know, just so difficult to, to prove. It's difficult to prove because everything is correlated, but it's like, wow, these ideas took off. And then like a lot of things went together. And then it's like, you know, there's the case to be made that it is the ideas that, you know, ideas have consequences. That's not something that's hard or crazy to believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's tricky because on the one hand, the timing does link up to the great awakening post sort of 2013-14. But at the same time, I think what's interesting is you also see significant LGBT identity amongst groups that you wouldn't assume are as affected by the Great Awakenings. So non-college educated minorities, for example. Uh, it, there doesn't seem to be a significant difference between whites and minorities, nor between the college educated and the non-college educated in the numbers identifying as LGBT. You have certain groups such as you know, non-college educated African-American women that are sort of, you know, 10 points above the median. Uh, even non-college educated African-American men, even though they're low, they, they're below average, but it's the numbers are still approaching, you know, 15, 20%. So I, this is one of the reasons why I don't, I think what you can say is that in the FIRE data, which is U.S. students top 150 universities, you can definitely see that Political factors are playing, I would argue, a bigger role, explicitly political factors. So being in favor of shouting down speakers who offend you, you know, that is a very significant predictor of being LGBT. Um, that, however, I think if we're, if we're to look at the non-college educated group, though, those kinds of explicitly political explanations don't take us as far. What I kind of would argue is that there's been a sort of outgrowth from um, sort of what I would call a transgressive modernist culture that emphasizes novelty and difference rather than sameness. So emphasizing that novelty and difference. And, and Daniel Bell, the New York intellectual, very much pioneered the study of cultural modernism, which is instead of reproducing tradition, you're anti-tradition, you want to shock, you want to provide, be something new and different. Um, that, that then spreads in the wider culture and so it can then be something that's picked up even by, let's say, non-college educated African-American men, for example. And, and so it's slipped out of the campus type environment or the elite environment. Uh, so it's broader than the Great Awakening. And this is one of the reasons I think it's not, it's not easily linked to explicitly to the Great, great Awakening, which really hits yeah. White liberals. Well, can, can the Great Awakening be seen as a subset of this? You know, move towards from, or can the tra- you know transgressive uh, modernist culture be a subset of the Great Awakening? I mean, they seem like they should be related somehow, right? Or what's the sort of overlap between these two things? Well, the the, the there's two things which I mean, I call the what uh, Wesley Yang calls the successor ideology. I call left modernism, as you know, um, and I think it's a blend of two things. One is a cultural form of socialism in which you are 
going to equalize by race, gender, and, and sexual identity group. You're going to, you, you know, you're targeting, you're going to overthrow the patriarchy and white supremacy. So it is a kind of cultural version of the left, but allied to that is this idea of modernism, rejecting tradition, um, social construction, all identities are fluid, all that, you know, that, that sort of whole postmodernist type uh, discourse, which is very linked to, to this notion of the new, the different, all, always rejecting tradition, that kind of. So, so I, so like to just interrupt. So again, you yeah, know, it's interesting to think about the difference. So I, when I studied the early civil rights movement, I think about the first aspect of that. There was an aspect of, we're going to overthrow the sort of the white male culture or change it, or at least change the identities of, you know, people diversify the elite. Um, but it was in the context of like, you know, the early uh, EEOC, for example, didn't think about, you know, women's rights. They thought about, you know, getting black men jobs, for example. They had the sort of the same uh, patriarchal assumptions that society always had. And that lasted for like five or six years before the women's movement um, took off in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and so that's, and so that's like, you know, that's, I guess that's, that's, uh, which one's liberalism, which one's modern? Those would, I think those would all still be kind of cultural socialism. So they're, they're about, oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's equalizing what I'm saying. between that's identity culture. groups. Yeah. Might've been race first, then gender. But yeah. I, what I'm talking about is actually more the sort of sexual revolution, divorce, decline of religion, uh, people living alone, this sort of expressive individualism. That's getting women and mi minorities to the jobs. That's like, you know, the, 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 you imagine yeah. the world staying the same. You just add more women and you add more blacks to like Fortune 500 companies. Um, and otherwise, basically, you have the same moral values. Is, is that sort of the difference? And then the next thing is like sort of it adds this, okay, everything is fluid. Everything is weird. Fat acceptance. Are these like sort of the, the, the two underlying ideas? Well, I, I, I think, yeah, I think that to put it simply, the left idea is about equality and, and harm prevention, let's say, to particularly totemic groups around race, gender, sexuality. That, uh, the, the sort of it's more political. It's about redistribution of power, destroying power structures, whereas the modernist thing is arguably just more purely cultural, where it is about um, the new, the shock of the new in art, for example, modern art, you know, comes in in the early 20th century, it's about uh, alternative forms of uh, living, living alone, being single, you know, not being sex before marriage, not being religious, rejecting tradition. Doesn't necessarily need to be left. You even had certain right wing forms of modernism, um, and that you know, if you look at the Beats and 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 groups just prior to the '60s, you know, they might have been pretty male chauvinist. They weren't necessarily focusing on on these great ethical projects. It was much more about expressing your, your inner true self without being encumbered by bourgeois social mores and artistic conventions. And you're just going to break with all that because you want to be liberated. And, and it's a different thrust from wanting yeah, to protect people from harm and to equalize power and all this so you think great awakening you think great awakening is the first thing it's the uh, it's the equal it's more equalizing identity and this lgbt stuff is related but it, it's more of the the cultural it's broader i it's think it's kind of an off it's an offshoot of that whole expressive revolution you know the sexual revolution expressive revolution the breaking of boundaries not not for power reasons but more just for i want to be free liberated type reasons um, that, 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 that sort of thrust. Now, of course, there, it's never entirely separate. There is always a kind of political angle to it, but let's just say it's dif distinct enough that you could get relatively unpolitical types of people like 
non-college educated African-American, for example, uh, who might just soak up this culture from the wider, you know, celebrity from social media, whatever. And, and so I think that's, if I were to say, I think that's probably what's going on, but I would say on campus, there's an extra layer, which is an explicitly political, Hey, I'm LGBT because that's also sticking into the patriarchy or to some kind of established political structure. Um, but, but one thing it is, that is the case is that the university educated are not, if anything, they're less likely to be LGBT than the non-university educated. So it doesn't fit necessarily a purely political type of explanation. Yeah. The, um, so I guess one way to look at it is sort of like the Trump movement is a little bit like a, it's not a left, but it is compared to say uh, conservatism before it, um, you know, a little bit more of a transgressive thing. So I don't know if you've seen Lady Maga, uh, this uh, trans individual uh, this, uh, who goes around is like, oh, I'm Lady Maga, but it's like you know, born a man, <laughs> and like you know, she, the, uh, she got into a fight. She, I mean, he, she, whatever goes by, got into a fight with like Nick Fuentes on Twitter, and there was a video of <laughs> oh, him saying like, you don't, you know, you don't belong in the concern. Get out of the Trump movement or whatever. And it's like, but you know, the Trump movement does like the Christian conservatives of 30 years ago would not have accepted such a person. While the Trump person, Trump movement does accept and accepts Trump himself, who's been divorced uh, uh, twice before. Um, and so th that's a, um, so this is like, it's the transgressive thing and sort of mega, it's like this own the libs sort of shock. Let's go Brandon, this, pro you know, this profanity and this sort of crudeness of it all that, that, that seems like that's progressive, but not left. It's not interested in equal representation of, you know, women and, and minorities. Right? Yeah. So, well, it's, yeah, you, of course, these things are complicated, right? It's just like, you can be left, you know, if I go, but if you go back to pre-World War One, you know, the Marxist left would would look at the NAACP and go, that's what? That's really bourgeois. We don't want any part of that. Of course, we want to have more advanced groups into the country because they're going to bring the socialist revolution and these other groups are going to retard it. You know, so, you, you know, you'd have, you can have different kinds of left uh, inconsistencies, but then you can also have with modernism too, you, you might have like radical innovation in the technological sphere or in, in one, as you mentioned right there in certain areas, but then you could still have traditionalism. And I think, you know, with the Trump movement is to some degree, a, a traditionalist movement. You know, if you look at his speech at, at, um, Oh God, um, I'm trying to remember when he was talking, what, what's that mountain where they, uh, Mount, Mount Rushmore. Rushmore, he did his Mount Rushmore speech and he very much invoked, the defense of tradition against people who are going to take down statues and who are going to attack American tradition. So he is defending against the modernist thrust is very much to, to, to break with tradition, to tear things down. So he is kind of anti-modernist in some ways. Uh, but in other ways, as you say, certain innovations, he might yeah. be classed. I guess a it's a compromise. It's a compromise. The Trump movement is maybe some kind of compromise. Uh, with modernism, it's like okay, critical race theory. We'll have like so. Trump had a um, you know, he had a thing where he, you know, when the, when they were liberals were tearing down all these statues, he had a thing where he was going to start like a hall of heroes or something where they were going to have like yeah. all these statues of people in American history. And it's like you know, it's funny. I looked at the list and it's like you know, there's a lot of affirmative action going on. It's like a lot of women and you know, uh, uh, non-whites who maybe yeah. weren't important in American history. And so like you know, you have this uh, you have this sort of compromise where it's like you're still going to say America is the greatest country in history and you're not going to like be too explicit with the anti-white stuff. You're not going to like critical race theory. Um, you know, you're not going to encourage, you know, gender transition, but at the same time, it is, it is, it is sort of a compromise. Like it will accept some kind of, you know, affirmative action. Um, and, and, and so it's like, it's like, uh, 
I guess this is opposite of what I was saying, because that sounds like it's, um, it's, uh, I was saying the Trump movement is more modern, less, uh, left. Um, but that sounds, that sounds like, you know, sort of anti-modern, but more, so yes, it's very complicated. I mean, I think, I think if you go back to the Bush brothers and the fusionist establishment republicanism that was about, uh, the religious right. So the, the, the religious conservatism, family values, um, you know, uh, school prayer and not teaching evolution, all these sorts of things that, I mean, that kind of social conservatism is certainly not a driving, not the major force in Trumpism. Trumpism is a break from that kind of conservatism. That's not to say Trump isn't supported by evangelicals, but if you look at what he's pushing, it's not the office of faith-based initiatives and, and, the kind of things George W. Bush was pushing. It is much more, and, and, and of course that religious conservatism was very universalist and missionary, and it was about you know Christian Zionism and all these other foreign policy things, right? Um, and that's kind of out of fashion. And so I think it's much, I always say Trump is much more of a European style conservatism, much more recognizable to Europeans, whereas the older kind of fusionism would be completely alien almost, uh, except in a few places like Ireland or Poland. Uh, so yeah, Trump represents that kind of more secular nationalist conservatism. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that, that goes with, yeah. Acceptance of, you know, LGBT relative to the, to the past. And yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, the, uh, so yeah, I mean, so there is, I mean, some evidence that this, you know, at least the trans and non-binary stuff peak, you know, I saw we saw uh, we were just uh, a week uh, before, a week, a little bit more than a week before I think we recorded this. Or a few, was that a few days ago? Was that the Bill Maher thing? Uh, we're recording yes, this on- Yes, uh, a few days ago, yeah. Okay, we're recording this on May 24th, so but uh, I think it was the last Friday, um, and it'll be a few weeks by the time this is released. You know, he said, you know, he basically said, he basically came out and did a little segment where he said that the uh, uh, the, tra- the rise of trans is a sort of kind of social contagion. He made the point that it differs a lot by region, and, you know, uh, it's gone up in a, a few years, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of similar points that you're making um, here. Um, and so, you know, maybe this is just sort of a, um, a hint that something is changing, or maybe it just be, you know, this, it might be a, a harbinger of things to come, or it might be just like an indication that the trend has already peaked. And so you have about the gender nonconformity specifically, rather than LGBT, LGBT as, as a whole, uh, you have some data that, uh, uh, you know, this, we might be on the downward slope, at least initially. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So, so, um, we've seen this big jump uh, in um, LGBT identification, which which according to the Pew data, sort of, or according to the Gallup data, seemed to go from like you know roughly double between uh, let's say 2017 and 2021. Um, and however, at the same time, we're seeing a continual rise in LGBT. Just in the last couple of years, I think there is some evidence that the trans phenomenon has peaked and has gone into decline. And the the the, the points of the data points that I'm going to use on this are from the FIRE survey. FIRE sampled about 20,000 in 2020, 37,000 in 2021. Um, now they moved what from kind of 15... response rates do you get? Do you know how much is FIRE uh, polluted? What, what, what kind of response rates do they get? How much is FIRE polluted with these problems of surveys that we've talked about? I, I think it's got the same issues that the other surveys have, but it's focusing only on students. And they can weight the data because a lot of universities put out official figures on particularly race and gender and, and a number of other factors. So you can weight by 
those figures, and, and I'm talking about the weighted data. Um, and what you what you can see, if we compare the same 50 institutions that they sampled in 2020 and those same institutions in 2021, the trans share drops from around one and a half percent in 2020 to zero point eight five percent in 2021. So that's a almost a halving in the number of people who replied that they were trans or, or non-binary. Well, it was just non-binary, right? They didn't have the, they didn't uh, have that's the right, sorry, they, yeah, That's yeah. right. Um, and so uh, that is a pretty substantial drop. And in the second survey in 2021, they also expanded it to a, a wider set of institutions. And you can see the number across the 150 institutions is 0.95. Either way you slice it, it is a substantial drop. The other thing is that um, the 20 and up uh, group is substantially more likely to be um, non-binary than the 18 and 19 year olds in 2021. So we have two two pieces of evidence. One is uh, a significant drop between 2020 and 2021, and the second is uh, the older students in 2021 are more likely to be trans than. And LGBT stays the same between 20 and 20. 20 uh, the LGBT 20. numbers continued rose over those years from 2020 wow. to 2021, and in fact. I would suggest and quite a number of people who said they were non-binary have actually identified as another LGB category. Uh, so for the fire data, I mean, just so people know, because it's important, it asks yeah. male, female, um, uh, or non-binary. It gives you three choices for your sex. And then you can identify your orientation, which is L you can LGB, no T, which is the right. you know, strange thing for this. Queer, uh, there's so. queer and, and other, and there's a number of different categories. Um, and it turns out that, you know, most of those who identify as non-binary picked a category other than heterosexual for their sexual orientation. Yeah. I mean, so, so between 2020 and 2021, they stopped yeah. saying they were non-binary or were less likely to say they were non-binary and just they right. moved into one of the other, you know, they, they still said they were queer. Yeah. And, and so I think that evidence shows that that's evidence for a peak for at, in 2020. Now, I then again triangulate with some other little data points, one of which is the Canadian census, the only census that so far has asked this question. Uh, you, you, know, you start with the oldest age group, and it's a very, very minuscule share that um, say they're transgender or non-binary. It goes to a peak. Uh, the peak is in the, um, I think it's in the 24 to, to 28 or something like that, 22 to 24. Try to remember the exact age bracket. Uh, it peaks at around 0 0.85. And then for the 16 to, to, to 22s, or tw I think the 16 to 22s, it drops back to 0 0.73. So for every other age group, uh, it, it's rising as we go from old to young. And if this trend was continuing, you'd expect the sort of under 22 group to be even more LGBT. Uh, or sorry, even more non-binary non -binary and transgender, but actually they're substantially less. It's 0 0.73 versus 0 0.85. So the peak group is really in the early 20s and not in the late teens to early 20s. Um, so that's another piece of evidence that I think looks a lot like what we see the on Canadian, the fire. I'm sorry, the, Cana the Canadian one uh, is opposite of fire. It doesn't ask about. Does it ask? It doesn't ask about non-binary. It asks about trans, right? So we're, we're doing no. It's got both trans and oh, non-binary. Okay. Oh, that's right. separate categories. But I'm combining these two um, because okay. there's. So you, know, you have the fire data and the Canadian data. Yeah, and then we've also got one other data point, which is the referrals for gender reassignment surgery in Britain. 
there's a clinic that's sort of the central clearing for this, and they report the numbers each year. And so those numbers rose from something like 130, 140 in 2010 or thereabouts to, you know, 2,750 uh, in 2019. It was the same number in 2020. In 2021, it drops by about 400 to 2380. So it's the same. Is it possible that other gender clinics opened up in Britain and took their business? No, it's pretty much. No, it's it's pretty much. This seems to be. You know, this is the main place that you go and that you're referred to. Um, and there we again, the timing looks exactly the same. I would argue as as the other data points in the fire data. So I think it it does appear that that the trans phenomenon peaked in 2020. Now, we'll see what happens going forward, but this at least would suggest this is not something that's just going to rise and rise and rise and rise. Um, now, we haven't sort of seen the peak of the LGBT uh, phenomenon as a whole. That has risen in the 2020 to 2021 fire data. So in all the data sets, that trend has not maxed out, but the trans, uh, the trans and non-binary trend, I, I would argue, very much has. Um, so that's, again, just in keeping with this view that the trends that Marr and Ross Douthat talked about are, you know, we can take a more skeptical view of just how transformational they are. I mean, the, the other, of course, the other point, uh, you know, even getting beyond the trans and non-binary issue, which is, of course, a huge political uh, issue. But, you know, we can talk about the, the way in which um, these phenomena are really concentrated in that very liberal fifth of the population. So if, if the concern or the celebration is around, hey, this is going to make the country much more uh, liberal and less heteronormative, um, I think this data would, would sort of pour a bit of cold water on that because it's sort of suggesting that the radical potential of this is blunted by the fact that it is taking place almost you know, very heavily within that very liberal fifth of the population. So it's making very liberals more LGBT, but it's not making everybody else very liberal. Mm. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, the, the importance of it, I mean, even if, you know, the census data is right and the trans is, you know, 2% among women and, you know, 0.5% among men or 1% among men. I mean, if, if, you know, how many people got lobotomies? I mean, it was not, not that high percentage of the population, right? But if people are undergoing unnecessary procedures to stop puberty and have surgery, and it's only 1% of children, I mean, that is, that's huge. I mean, that's something that's worth, you know, worrying about. Oh, right? for, of course, of course. Yeah. And, and I don't, you know, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and so this is not by any means suggesting this thing's gone away. It's just suggesting that we may have hit peak trans and therefore, um, but it'll be an interesting one to watch what happens to all those those numbers. But if this is a cultural thing, to the extent it is a cultural thing, um, and it isn't just about toleration, but it is also about, you know, if we want to, you know, could it be about imitation or trendiness or any of these things is that Bill Maher talks about? If that's the case, um, and the trend starts to move the other way, could you get a cascading effect and, and see a, a reversal of these trends, right? So that is, of course, I'm not making any predictions, but just from the last couple of years' data points, that would be a possibility. Uh, now, the other, but, but as I say, of course, when it comes to bisexuality, um, you know, that doesn't seem to have had a, a similar peak. So 
it could be that that cut does continue to do what Bill Maher is projecting. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just right, you know, bisexuality. I mean, it's just a word. I mean, it's like it's like the behavior is, you know, it's like the, the you know the, the the you know the puberty blockers. The, you know, this is this is important to me. You know, how much of that happens? Some people are going to surgery, and then like behavior, you could see how behavior has a you know is, is a big change in people's lives. You know, people want to say they're why. I mean, it, you know, women particularly. I mean. You know, it's something. It's telling you something about society and what it values, and you know how people think about you know difference and conformity and all that. But you know, it, it's, it could be like a fashion trend. I mean, it could be like the macarena. I mean, it could be something. Like <laughs> as long as you don't do the, you know, the. Thank God uh, that fashion trend went out. I was no <laughs> fan of that. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. just they kept playing it over and over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So these things burn out. I mean, if they're just, if you don't actually undergo the medical treatment, right? The thing just sort of fizzles out sometimes, and. We could see that, and you know, the other point you make in the in the um, in the paper is that it's concentrated among liberals. So you've changed sort of the democratic coalition, what it looks like, but you haven't. You know, everyone's gay, so now you know Republicans can't win elections anymore. It's not it's not looking like that, right? Right. Yeah, and that that's sort of one of the points is that the political radicalism in, inherent in this is blunted. It's kind of limited, you know. And if you look at the young population, their partisanship. You know, went a little bit more Democrat in the Obama years, and it's sort of gone a little less so after that. But no real big monumental shifts. Um, and and you know, there has been an increase in the number of college-educated women saying they are liberal. That has gone up, but we don't see any major changes on partisanship amongst young people. Um, now, of course, you might say, "Oh, well, what's this going to do to the birth rate?" But and, but and of course. Again, if you take this from a conservative perspective, if you're really worried about birth rate, what this is doing is it's actually leading to a drop. If you, you know, to the extent that uh, LGBT people do have a lower fertility rate, that's well established. Nothing new here. But if um, if these trends do continue, what what that's essentially meaning is that you've got a dropping birth rate in the most liberal segment of the population compared to the most conservative. So. That's not exactly going to disadvantage the Republican Party. If, but I mean, I still am skeptical that these sorts of trends are going to continue. But if, let's say, LGBT identity means family formation and child rearing is reduced, you know, that could be a policy thing to worry about. But uh, again, the take home here is I don't think, you know, you know, the, the results would suggest that those declines would be concentrated in the very liberal uh, segment of the population. And so, again, the political radicalism of this is limited. Yeah, I mean, you have to, because if you're worried about birth rates and family formation, I mean, sex, sexlessness is just as important as LGBT identity. If people aren't getting, having partners or having sex or getting married at all, you know, that's also worth worrying about. Probably a bigger factor, I mean, considering the rise of this stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, it's... Um, it's interesting. The, the rise of LGBT while less young people are having sex. I don't know how uh, how strong that data is. I've seen things on Twitter that say you know that the sample size or or whatever or the data depends on the data set you use about the rise in sexlessness. Might, it might not be. Uh, it might not be all, all that it's uh, as sold as. Um, but you know, if it's a little bit of a you know, I, I think that you know it's probably at least comparable to LGBT for people who worry about uh, you know the future of the country and you know they. they yeah, but I mean, of course, the all of this is in the context, of course, of this debate over what's being taught in schools and the whole question of sexual grooming and, and identity. And I think there it's, it's you know, and the don't say gay bill and all these sorts of things. And, and behind this perhaps is a fear of 
that this is a radical change and that, that, you know, the whole family structure of the country is being transformed. Now, I'm kind of skeptical, as I've argued, uh, but I do think there are sort of significant political implications of this data and these trends uh, and where political energy is going. Uh, now, I think on the schooling front, one of the things that does emerge from the FIRE data where they do ask they do ask um, college students where they went to school, and they've got four categories, private, public, parochial, which would be, for example, a Catholic religious schools, and homeschool. Um, and you don't see any real significant difference in the proportion LGBT in those four categories. Now, what I'm taking from that is that the schooling per se is not likely behind this trend. And whereas, for example, social media use is correlated with being, you know, the higher social media use is correlated with a greater likelihood of identifying as LGBT. And I think there is perhaps better evidence for social media influence uh, in on this phenomenon than influence through schooling. But of course, it's not definitive, but it is a data point that would suggest maybe even now, now, however, you can still believe that schools aren't really inducing this in children, but at the same time think it's legitimate to have a conversation about at what point you introduce sexual education into schools and how do you represent what's the typical family formation, family structure and uh, sexual relationship in a country and what is perhaps a minority form of it. Uh, I think that's legitimate political discussion. But I don't know that the implications around, say, grooming and around uh, inducing of these uh, these identities is, is. I don't know if that case is particularly strong. Yeah. So looking at, I mean, looking at your data for for that from the fire data. I mean, the public and private is interesting. So I mean, the, the samples are decent for public. You have eight thousand people who went to public high schools and uh, two thousand for private. But the parochial, which is you know the, the you know private, can include you know very, very liberal thing. So it could be more liberal than the public schools. But parochial, the sample is, you know, 106. The homeschool sample is 131. And there's no difference. Yeah. But I mean, those are small samples and there's people selecting it to colleges. So yeah, we don't, we don't know. I mean, I have a hard time believing homeschooling your children, you know, will not have an influence on, you know, not have, not putting them in school at all, some kind of influence. Um, That's true. But, yeah. but I guess the, the question must be, well, the fire sample is picking up a certain small number of homeschooled and, and parochial kids. Uh, now, are they a special sort of draw from their home, from the homeschool population? Well, and they have probably, to answer the serve and the survey too, the survey problems too. So it's like they're, they're drawn and then like they're selected into the college and then plus they're also answering survey while everyone doesn't answer surveys. Right? That's true. That's true. But then I guess that's also true of the public and private. Um, so we don't know 100%, but it, it, it is just interesting that, you know, roughly a quarter of homeschool and parochial would, would also be LGBT. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, there's further research. I mean, other sort of data sets I've seen also would suggest a lot of the influence around also the Great Awakening is, is much more driven out of social media than schooling per se. Uh, you know, people will have heard about terms like white privilege first from social media, but it might be reinforced in schools, right? It might be that schools reinforce, or at least they don't counteract. Yeah. Yeah, um, Matt Iglesias, you know, made this point in the debate over critical race theory. It's like, we don't actually know 
like what school we don't have any data that surveys all the public schools and says you know they're all teaching whites are racist or they're all teaching critical race theory we, we have no idea and the same thing with the lgbt with libs of tiktok i mean they have stuff all day um <laughs> of you know these these crazy teachers who are you know just talking about brainwashing the kids and how much fun it is um but we have you know we have no idea how representative that is you know i don't know if you know it's like i don't know i think no, if you drop I'm into a red yeah, yeah. I would say that um, I'm conducting uh, ex- exactly such a survey in Britain right now. Right? I've seen the results. And, yeah, I mean, the numbers are probably greater than you believe they are. As far I'll, as I'll just know, leave it at question? that, 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 uh-huh. that it, this is not just a few schools. Um, but, anyway, that, that's okay. yeah. for – so it needs to be done in the U.S., but I, it, is, it, is, it is probably a larger – share than you would imagine <laughs> yeah. Yeah. no i imagine i don't know what i would imagine i haven't thought of, yeah. you know, I haven't thought about it that carefully um but yeah i uh yeah i mean there's like a you know i just sometimes i mean i don't know I, I watch i look at schools from the outside so i drive by a school i look at sometimes they have posters and you know one that's by me has like we are all dreamers it's got some you know a thing about maybe the child's an illegal immigrant or something and they've got something they had a kamala harris thing they didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, the school I was looking at didn't have like an LGBT flag. I don't see that. I see that if you go to the UCLA campus, you'll see LGBT <laughs> flags, you know, everywhere. Um, but yeah, we just, we just don't know. So like to have, know whether the schools have an influence, you have to know what the schools are teaching and then you have to assume, you know, they're, yeah. in, they're influencing I mean, uh, I, people. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, my presumption, I mean, from what I've seen is that their influence is not particularly great. Uh, that it's the wider culture through social media that's that's essentially having the influence, but but you know it's not zero. I don't know. I mean, it's I think it's something, but it's not zero. Uh, well, I, be- I believe it. I mean, I think back when I was a kid, was I influenced more by TV and you know uh, uh, CDs, which we had back there, music and you know pop culture, TV show than than schools. Yeah, un- unquestionably, the schools were not as big of an influence to me as the wider culture. So I I, yeah. I believe that. Um, yeah, but I think it's like the uh, yeah, evidence of universities. I mean, I again, you know, I don't think they shape people's. We've got studies of universities and politics, for example, and they have a small they have a small effect, but it's 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 a small effect, and it's pretty. I've just seen a survey now where where we ask people about people who uh, are going to go to university, but they're presently just working, taking a year out before they go, and they've kind of got the same looking attitudes as people who are already at university. I mean, so, so I just think it's kind of, I'm just not sure how much these educational institutions content wise do, but, but I still think it's legitimate to have debates over what schools are teaching. They shouldn't be sort of propagandizing. And I think it's legitimate to say, Hey, you know, you should be politically neutral. These things are not politically neutral. Uh, Or you should represent, you know, the, the range of lifestyles, the range of identities reasonably, equitably in terms of their, their incidence in the population rather than presenting a vastly skewed picture. I think that's all legitimate, but I guess my view is that perhaps the panic over – the idea that this is somehow in, inculcating different yeah. sexualities. Yeah, you don't need, you know, you know, for your, you know, your standard of what you need to like make demands about what your children are exposed to, they don't have to be high. Like, you know, you know, if someone says, I don't want my children watching pornography, it's like, oh no, show me a peer reviewed study or we're going to show your children. Right. <laughs> like, my, my right is to say, I'm uncomfortable with this. You know, I think there's a chance it might be bad. I don't want to show it to them. So yeah, I, I have the same view as, as schooling. If, you know, they should reflect the views of the community. Well, there's no neutral principles here. I think that's a sort of a, uh, 
in the real myth. Um, yeah, yeah, it's tricky, right? Because you, you, on the one hand, you don't want them to be prevented from discussing, you know, somebody who's got a same two same sex parents. Um, but at the same time, you also don't want them to to suggest that that you know that's the mainstream of society simply because it's just. Uh, not an accurate representation of the country or the society. So uh, there's kind of like a balance there where you might say, here's the mainstream, you know, here is a mainstream. Most of the people you portray would be, let's say, heterosexual. And then you'd portray a roughly uh, proportionate number of, of uh, you know, non-heterosexual. I mean, I think that would be fine. You know, I just think, uh, so you don't want to go 100% one way, 100% the other, but it's very tough to get to that kind of, inflection point in a debate where it's kind of a very all or nothing. Um, yeah. I mean, I would, I would let, I mean, I would let the schools do what they want. I mean, as far as uh, the, the community do what they want, you know, as far as the school. So, uh, you know, if they want to say, if they, you know, if there's people who have religious view and, you know, we're not supposed to teach religious doctrine, but if they have the view that homosexuality is wrong, you know, I don't think that they have to show, you know, proportion that, you know, 5% or 2% of the population is gay. I don't think there's any moral obligation. 7.1. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have Depending on which moral. data you use. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so even that is, you know, controversial. How are you going to get proportionate? We, we, we just talked about how hard it is to, to figure that out. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, all right, yeah, this is a big topic. I mean, uh, we're recording this before the report is out, but I'm, you know, I'm sure it's going to get a, a lot of attention and it's going to be very interesting uh, to people. And um, yeah, I think the headlines here are, the it's it's the behavior hasn't changed as much as um identity it's concentrated on the left it's related to mental illness um trends uh may have peaked and and uh uh you know the census data that's a huge one i mean it's probably not 25 percent. so right that's easy it's not one in four kids it's you know one in 10 or one in 20 or, or something like that right and any you know anything else you would say about the sort of the this question because it's it's an important topic even even if the the low end estimates are right it's still a big change in our culture yeah i mean i think it, there's also a question in here about the thrust of conservative activism going forward for example and you know there has been a sh you know to what extent are we going to have a conversation about sexuality and lgbt or to what extent is it going to be more about secular issues around critical race theory for example uh, my own view is that the those sort of critical race theory questions about history are more important and more consequential. And actually, there is where I'm more supportive, for example, of interventions. Um, whereas I think the the LGBT one could be one where you know you're chasing something that is really not necessarily that important, particularly long term, because we haven't even talked about these people getting older and you know settling down and what's going to happen longer term right and and if you actually look long term like that it may be that this this fizzles uh to, to some degree so i'm just not sure that it it warrants the energy because any energy you're directing towards one thing is, is energy you're not really able to direct elsewhere and i just kind of worry that this could be a what you know somewhat of a wasted effort um and and that whereas whereas i i think the bigger issues are around uh, you know, traducing national history and heritage and, you know, in the schools and that that's probably where you want to focus more of your efforts. Um, but, but, but I think it's sort of drifted towards, towards these sorts of questions, which I think is, is perhaps not necessarily the most productive direction. I don't know what you think of that. 
So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I would, I would agree. Look, I would rather have a hundred percent chance of my children having to read, uh, Abraham Kendi than a 1% chance they're going to be convinced that they're trans, right? right so yeah, I, I think, okay. I think their point, but the, um, the potential harm, you know, it might go over the head of 90, 99% of kids and it might not matter. The potential harm here is so great if you want grandchildren or something, um, that I think it's, it's definitely worth worrying about. And that's not even getting into the sort of the second order effects of our culture. So yeah, I think, I think both fights are, you know, I think both fights are worth fighting. And you know what? I don't, I don't know if there's much of a trade off between them because if conservatives get, you know, control of the school board, the same people who don't like critical race theory are the ones who are not going to like LGBT propaganda. So they're, you know, they're probably more synergistic than they are, uh, uh, you know, sort of competing priorities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I guess it depends on sort of what the target is. If it is sort of the trans thing or if it's, if it's sort of a wider thing about, you know, LGBT, I think the trans thing is driving yeah. it. I mean, I think if that was good, like the, you know, the, the non-binary, the trans, you know, just somebody being gay. I mean, I think that, you know, conservatives might not like it. It's not going to motivate, you know, huge political action. To, uh, right. Right. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. I think that's focused on, on that. And I think it's, I think it's, it's a right choice. I think there's an instinct instinct here that's, you know, good and, and, and pointing in the right <laughs> direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's just very interesting to sort of see, um, some of these trends in the data and how powerful they are in that very liberal group, because that's, again, there's very little attention paid. It's amazing how few papers are focusing on these powerful correlations between ideology, mental health, and, and sexuality. I mean, you would have thought, I mean, in a normal, uh, academic situation that this would yeah. be getting a lot more attention Look, if it was the, if the relationship was reversed if it was conservatives who had off the off, you know off the charts levels of mental illness it would be the biggest i mean it would be the biggest social science story in the world so i mean there's a you know there, it doesn't fit with the narrative it, it makes you know people it makes uh sort of liberalism look bad and i think you know just there's a subconscious desire not to not to focus on it as too important Great case for political diversity, great, great case for why you need moderates and conservatives who might look at the stuff that liberals, you know, might want to ignore. Right. Because, I mean, if you really believe that, you know, if you believe that, you know, there's this connection between LGBT and, and mental health, which is well established. So if there's a cert, I mean, if you believe in a certain kind of causation, a surge in LGBT identity could translate into a surge of mental health problems. Now, I've kind of argued in the report that actually the mental health hasn't really risen just like the share of liberals or very liberals hasn't really risen it would suggest that it's what well, it has risen but it's it hasn't risen as fast as we might assume if that lgbt rise translated into a mental health rise so it's much more that no the lgbt growth is within the already people who already would have some sort of uh, you know mental health or, or it's disproportionately within that group uh, but but still you would have thought that could be something concerning i mean if you're worried about self-harming and mental health and and anything that would help explain why that is occurring should be attracting um, more scholarship but well, um, it's interesting to contrast yeah. with the um the uh the covid uh, school closure so you know big learning loss minorities you know supposedly think liberals care about and then the uh you know the mental health aspect of it and like weight gain and a bunch of bad stuff happened when they closed the schools during covid and um the uh 
you know, it gets a little bit of a t- like at the start they ignored it, but then like you know eventually it became a thing. I think when like the you know liberal educated class got sick of COVID restrictions, then they started like bringing it up, and the teachers unions were just crazy. Like you know they were just, they were right. like you know the, the, that's like the mentally ill wing of liberalism, while yeah. like the more <laughs> mentally healthy wing of liberalism was saying no, 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 we have to think about this. But the LGBT is different because it, it's not like school closures was like a sacred value. I mean, LGBT has become like a sacred value. So like seeing what's going on there is harder than seeing like the objective effects of school closures um but you know i mean bill maher i mean bill maher seems to be like a sort of a weather vane you know so i think when he you know turns up turned on covid restrictions i think that sort of changed the conversation so you know this report uh bill maher people talking about this you know sort of as a as a sort of a uh trendy uh kind of thing rather than you know something that's just you know a true expression of self or whatever um yeah you know things might things things might change i mean we might see the tail end of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it'll be really interesting though, because there is a, a degree to which, when something like trans, you know, if it peaks and then starts to come down, it's very different when you're in a situation where things are rising all the time. You're kind of trendy and fashionable, and because it's much tougher when you've endured when you've had some decline. Now, in the story about a sort of inevitable rising phenomenon can no longer be sustained. So uh, it'll be interesting to watch what happens, say, on the trans front. If, if they are now a declining phenomenon, what is, could there be a cascading effect? Um, you know, that's one thing to look at. The other thing is the, the whole mental health thing, which is, I mean, at extremely high levels. The Derek Thompson, uh, you know, he really showed that. Um, but, you know, what exactly is the debate, oh, I mean, the impact of the pandemic, the pandemic seems to have ramped up these mental health problems across all groups. Um, but I don't know, have you seen a lot of discussion? I mean, I guess there's the, the Thompson piece, but on the relationship between pandemic and mental health. Yeah, I've, I've seen, I've seen that. It's usually by, you know, people like David Leinhardt at the New York Times, people who are like, they, they, they are skeptical of the COVID restrictions anyway. Um, right. And so they will bring it up. And sometimes even the people who like the COVID or some people who are very hysterical about COVID will say, we've got to control the disease because, you know, children's mental health. And they won't like, they won't consider like, you know, not controlling the schools because they're so committed to the restrictions, but they will still acknowledge like the public health thing. So I do see a lot of that actually in, in the media. People use it, you know, depending on whether they're pro-COVID restrictions or, or anti. While the LGBT plus mental health thing, I, I've never seen, you know, yeah, I don't think I've seen anyone discuss like Zach Goldberg, maybe like on Twitter and like your report, right. CSPI, basically. And, well, there yeah. are papers, but it's always from the perspective of, you know, it's because the sort of person. I've, oh, I've seen that. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. But, but, I've seen. Yeah. And it, it blames discrimination. Sure. Yeah. And then not looking over time, like, you know, you'll blame crime on like racism against blacks. But then like you won't look at like, you know, the crime rate over time, which doesn't fit the story that, you know, it's right. racism. Uh, so you will find it in that context. But the connection as far as like. There's a causal relationship that's not based on discrimination or something. No, I've I don't think I've seen anyone talk about that. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah, but but yeah, but I think it is sort of you know these links to the, some of those psychological traits around uh, you know openness, and neuroticism, and conscientiousness. I mean, I think that's you know an interesting one to watch because there there has you know from like 2010 up until 20 sort of 17 18 it does look as though that link between lgbt and mental health became stronger over time so something occurs in that period and it's hard to know what it is it, it's it's you know and we can we haven't even talked about religion and the but i i don't again i'm sort of somewhat skeptical that religious decline 
correlates. I mean, even though for an, in, an individual who is a regular attender or who is Christian rather than a non-believer is much less likely uh, to be LGBT and probably less likely, I believe, to, to be depressed. In it. But still, the, the, the big decline has, has occurred earlier in religion. And so I don't think it, the timing is right. Yeah, when I was a kid, I mean, when I was a kid, I was in a sort of a middle lower class suburb of Chicago. And, you know, maybe people from foreign countries or something, they have a view of like all regular Americans are like, you know, evangelicals. And like I never met an evangelical um, at my high school. It's a very regional uh, sort of uh, thing. But then the, um, you know, there was this sort of, you know, casual racism. And there was also this, um, you know, very big homophobia. If someone was gay, everyone would hate him and want to want to beat him up. So the religion has kind of, I mean, the secularization, even when I was a kid, was already there in like this, you know, regular American town while the gay acceptance, I mean, there was, there was nothing like that. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I, I doubt, yeah, I, religion is, you know, something it's maybe like a protective thing against, you know, whatever, whatever trends are happening, but uh, yeah, youth have been secular for, for a while, I think in the United States, I, I don't think that's changed all that much. No, no. And, and we see by the way, in Britain and in other countries, these trends as well, where, you know, Britain already a very secular place, uh, and yet this sort of sudden, the sudden shift in the last sort of, you know, five, six, seven years. So that's not explained, I think, by religious trends. Uh, that, so, so that would be my inclination on that. Just that other wrinkle, even though that's not to say, you know, right now, if you look at American college students, yes, the ones that are Christian are, are, are you know, what we might do, uh, Eric, we might have a, you know, uh, have a friend who's a, um, uh, who's like a moderator at uh, Metaculus. I don't know if he's a moderator, but he, he submits questions to Metaculus. And so they will let you put like, he might, you know, try to get one like 2030, what percentage of the youth will be LGBT? And you can see sort of what people <laughs> think. And we, we can track that over time. That'll be, that'll be fun. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I've, I never, think I've never gotten into these prediction markets the way you have. Uh, it's, it's fun. It's a good way to sort of test yourself and see if, you know, you know what you're talking about and just sort of keep track over time. Make some money too, if you, you could put that knowledge to use. Although, especially in the UK, if I was, if I was in the UK, I would, I would spend a lot more time on them because we're limited here in the US uh, to age 50 per market. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the payoff is not as high as it would be. So if I was you, I would, <laughs> I would do it. Oh. <laughs> I, I think you have some knowledge that, you know, that can. Well, mind you, there's, there's certain things I'm glad I didn't get into like crypto. Um, uh-huh. you oh, know, I, oh. I, you, well, it depends on when you got into it. If you got yeah, into yeah. it five years ago, my God, you'd be fine. You'd be great. If you got into it a year ago, maybe, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay. uh, it was fun, Eric. And um, yeah, look forward to this report coming out. People will probably have a chance to read it, read it by the time this comes out. And uh, until next time. Thanks, Richard. That was great. It's a pleasure. Mm-hmm.